scripture reading today is from Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've been with us for the past several weeks, we've been trying to answer that question, who are we? Right? So we, we did a series called This is Compass, and we're saying this is who we are. And we talked about several of our values. All right? And, and we believe that values, all those are, are just beliefs made visible. Right, we can say we value generosity, but when things get tight, is that belief made visible? All right? Now, that's crucial. It's absolutely crucial to know who you are. Uh, one of the things I do when I sit with people who are suffering, I'm just giving you all my cards right now, but inevitably I'll always ask the question, who are you? And it's amazing the first response is, I don't know. I don't know. Because when we're suffering, one of the first things is just like, we just start to doubt, fear kicks in, and the car is spinning, and we just don't know. So what we said is, hey, this is who we are as a church. Kind of no matter what's going on around us, God has made us place kick holders. You can tell I'm a big football fan. All right? So it's like, just hold the football. But the stadium's collapsing. Hold the football. All right? No matter what's happening around us, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. Now, that's super important. It's very, very important to know who you are. And it's not enough. It's not enough to just know who we are. All right? You also need to know where you are. All right? It's very good to know who you are. Foundational. Huge. We also need to know where we are, though, okay? So let me just give you an example. Let's say you're a classically trained pianist, all right? It's really great that you know who you are. You're a classically trained pianist. However, where you are dictates different energy, different actions, different, just different ways of being, right? So if you're a classically trained pianist, and it's Monday at 3.30, and you're sitting with a five-year-old who just keeps banging the keys, or if you're a classically trained pianist and you're at the Lincoln Center and it's a Saturday night and you're sitting in front of dignitaries and celebrities, you're gonna do things a little differently, all right? So we do need to know who we are. That's foundational. And then we gotta start asking though, like where are we? So we know who we are, now let's get a lay of the land around us. Who are we, where are we going, what's happening around us? That's exactly what we're going to be doing from about now till Easter. We've asked the question, who are we? Now we're asking, well, where are we? And, and how does that inform what we should be doing and where we should be going? Now, in just a moment, I'm going to sound like someone I don't want to sound like, okay? 
Let me just, I'll give you an example of this from my childhood. I, I, this wasn't my family, <clears throat> but this was the church we went to. I went to this church where uh, in the youth group they had us take, this is, this is true, it was called a worldliness quiz, okay? And so you took this worldliness quiz. I'm not making any of this up. This is a real thing my friends and I took. It was huge. It was this thick packet of a worldliness quiz. And there were questions in there like, how many cigarettes did you smoke last week? And for you kids out there, a cigarette is a vape you don't plug in, okay? <laughs> there are questions like, how many cigarettes did you smoke last week? Finish this, you know, the new Red Hot Chili, this, I'm dating myself a little bit, but the new Red Hot Chili Peppers album is called California and it was blank. And I was like, why am I getting in trouble for this? Californication, it's their best album ever, all right? And so anyway, at the end of this worldliness quiz, the, all these leaders compiled a list together and they sat with us and were like, Phew. It's worse than we thought. There are some of you in here who've smoked seven cigarettes. Some of you in here watch R-rated movies. And a few of you have had sex. We did not pass the worldliness quiz. We, well, maybe we did pass. I don't know. I don't know. Now, again, I'm walking on a very, I'm, uh, it's thin ice, all right, that I'm walking on right now, all right? Are there destructive behaviors that young people can get involved in? Yes. Some people think there are, okay? Do we want young people to be involved in destructive behaviors? Some people think no. All right? However, what do you think was accomplished through a worldliness quiz? All right, like, I don't know what target they were aiming at. Maybe they hit it and we're like, woo, we did it! Wow, right? Like, what are we doing here, right? Are, is it just like, let's shame these kids, let's send them into hiding, let's really just try to get them on this performance track where it's like, this is, this is what church kids look like, okay? I don't want to sound like that. All right, I do not want to sound like that. All I want to do in these next couple minutes is just like point out what we see. Again, we're not trying to shame anybody at all. We're just trying to say what we see. So again, I'm just asking for this like a, a big umbrella of grace, all right? Because we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about church attendance, okay? Again, I am not trying to be, we're not, there's no quiz here. I'm not trying to like shame anybody. I'm just trying to figure out where we are, okay? I'm also going to ask questions like, should we even care about church attendance, okay? So if, if all of a sudden it's like, whoa, what's happening? Just hang in there with me for a second while I'm under my umbrella of grace, okay? Now, this is a list that pointed out why church attendance is in the decline. And again, I'm asking, is that even something we should be worried about? But here's some of the reasons why church attendance is in decline. Like, church attendance is in decline? I don't mean, I mean everywhere, okay? I, uh, after college, Amy and I, we went to a church that had an evening service, and some of you are like, that's right, that's right. It's not that kind of evening service. What I mean by that was at Sunday at 5, they had a, the same identical service as in the morning, so if you couldn't make it in the morning, you just went Sunday at 5. Now, we would sometimes go to this service, which meant we had Sunday mornings open. So we would, like, go to the beach, we go get brunch, and look, I grew up... You know, my dad was like in leadership at our church. I, I grew up in the church. And the first time we went out on Sunday morning, it's like, oh my gosh, everybody knows I'm not supposed to be here. 
there, there's like this, it's hot, is it hot in here? Like this restaurant is, oh my gosh, like I'm doing something so bad, like did we, oh, like, hey, can I get you anything? No, like I'm fine, right? I just had this like guilt, all right? That's gone, all right? Gone are the days, gone are the days when 50 out of 52 Sundays, a family would just be in church, okay? Gone are the days. Again, we're just saying where we are, all right? And here are some of the reasons for that. More affluence, all right? We got more money, more options. Higher focus on kids' activity, right? Our kids schedule their little league games on Sunday morning. And again, remember, I asked for that umbrella of grace. I know I sound like I'm wagging a finger. And you're like, oh my gosh, we went to a little league. I'm not... I'm not in any way trying to shame anybody or judge. We're just saying what we see. We travel more. Like it or not, there are online options. All right, you can hear a way better sermon from a way better preacher from a way cooler place than where you are right now. Okay, there's just there's options. You're like, I don't like that. I mean, I don't make the rules. Right? This, this just happens. We do that. We already mentioned the cultural disappearance of guilt, which is wonderful, by the way. Guilt is a terrible motivator, and if people are only here because of guilt, are they really here, right? Self-directed spirituality. How many of us, when we've encountered a problem, we turn to our favorite podcaster, we just Google it, right? It's just easier to self-direct, all right? And again... That's not wrong. I'm, there's amazing resources out there. Uh, please don't misunderstand me. I am not anti-podcast. I think I have a podcast, okay? Everybody has a podcast. I'm not anti-podcast at all. And if you're like, oh, I'm in a bind. Oh, wow, this looks like a great podcast. That would help me. Don't be like, oh, man, I should feel guilty. No, 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 no. Get the help you need, okay? I'm just saying it creates an environment where it makes church odd, okay? Another one. Uh, church hurt. We've given our hearts to institutions only to experience that heart getting crushed publicly. And so some folks are like, I love Jesus. I love following the way. I'm not doing that in those four walls, though. Like, this is not a safe place, so I'm not going to go there. And again, that's the way it is. We're not saying if it's right. We're not saying if it's wrong. We're saying this is the way it is. Let's listen. Let's get curious. Okay? If, you, if you're still like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think things are going fine, okay? Critical theory, climate change, libertarianism, and Joe Rogan. <laughs> Critical theory, climate change, libertarianism, and Joe Rogan. Those words all elicit something. All right? And if, if it's like, you know what? You know what the solution for critical theory, climate change, libertarianism, and Joe Rogan, you know what the solution is? Church. I, I'm not a betting person, but I bet probably nobody thought that. You know, lots of folks talk about a coming hostility toward people of faith. Which, again, there are things that go bump in the night. I'm not here to argue that. I also just want to say, perhaps, perhaps, just as much as a coming hostility may feel like a threat, I actually think a big threat that we are facing could be disinterested folks. It 
may not be hostility. It may just be disinterest. Why in the world would I want to be around a group of people who orient their lives around the Bible? That feels really constrictive. I can have a self-directed spirituality. I'm a very complex person. You don't know me. I'm intricate. Why am I sitting with a bunch of strangers? Part of the reason also, though, that we feel this like, man, is church going as well as it should, is I think we've been aiming at the wrong target. I think we've been aiming at attendance and not engagement. What do I mean by that? You don't go to church. You, whew, that was a risk, and it paid off. Thank you. <clears throat> you don't go to church. You are the church. All right? The goal has never been attendance. The goal has never been like, man, we're doing so well. Look at those numbers. Look at this giving. Look at this building. We've really crushed it. You can do all that and completely miss the kingdom of God. You don't go to church. You are the church. The goal isn't attendance. The goal is engagement and transformation. So we've been aiming at the wrong target. Because, look, it's not like when you look out there, you're like, man, people's longings and cravings and desires and hopes for meaning. No one's thinking like that anymore. I really just wish my neighbor really kind of wondered who they were. I really wish my, my, my coworkers were like, why am I here? You know, I know the Bible says God put eternity in man's heart, but they're not coming to church on Sunday. We were aiming at the wrong target. Mark Sayers, who's a pastor in Australia, offers this really helpful perception on the moment we're in, where we are. Secularism offers the fruit of shalom minus the, uh, minus the tree of biblical fruit that bore it. Secularism offers the fruit of shalom, wholeness, peace, happiness, minus the tree of biblical fruit that bore it. You can experience the kingdom without the king. My life is great. I seemingly have everything I want, need. My, my longings are being fulfilled. And on Sunday morning, I got brunch and mimosas. All right? It seems like secularism is offering the fruit of the kingdom. And there's no, like, it's like, wait, are we missing the boat? Like, what's happening here? All right? Mark Sayers goes on to talk about three different cultures that kind of experience that. So the first culture that Sayers talks about is what we could call like pre-Christian. So we're going to be in Titus. We just read it. Spoiler alert. Okay. And um, pre-Christian would be like the island of Crete. Those folks just didn't know, right? Christianity hadn't gone there. They hadn't heard the good news. Hey, what it means to be a Christian is Christ has done for me what I could never do for myself. There's the, the, the Father can delight in you because of a relationship with Jesus. You can be united to God, united to others. Oh, my goodness. They just don't know. That's a first culture, all right? First cultures, though, tend to become second cultures. So once the gospel kind of takes hold and there's impact and Christianity can grow and has like a really big place of influence in a culture, that's a second culture, okay? This is a wild oversimplification bound to offend many, but like America has gone through seasons of being a second culture. America was never a Christian nation. There was never these good old days, but there have been points of revival. Think about The Tonight Show. Who would Johnny regularly have on The Tonight Show as like a spiritual guru and guide? Billy Graham, all right? 
Gone are those days, all right? Who does the Tonight Show have now? Deepak Chopra as the spiritual guide, okay? That's what, that's what life is like in a third culture. The third culture went from being a first culture. There's no Christian witness here. We just don't know. There's a Christian witness here. Oh, wow, Christianity has a place of they're, they're moving and they're shaking and there's impact for the kingdom. And then the third culture is what happens after the decline of that. It's called post-Christianity. And it's different from pre-Christianity. It's different because the danger of all these things, when, when you're, what happened, we saw this historically, second cultures, so cultures where Christianity is dominant, dominant, when they were trying to reach first cultures, the danger was colonialism, right? Just look at Mexico. I mean, that is, that is Europe came, and I mean, look at the United States, right? There's colonialism, right? That's the danger when a second culture tries to reach a first culture. The danger, though, is that the third culture, this post-Christian, also colonizes the second culture. You and I are so secular. Like, that's not true. I mean, it, we, it's just the air we breathe. Secularism, right? We, the, the, this idea that we can find meaning without breaking through the clouds, that's the air we breathe. And the danger is we get colonized by that third culture. That's where we are. The beauty is, though, the beauty in all this is that we're actually really close to Paul. Paul trying to reach a first culture is so similar to us trying to reach a post-Christian culture. And look, I'm not the first person to point this out, and I'm, the, I'm not the first person to feel it. There have been reactions. I, I was in a, a meeting once with a bunch of, I won't say the denomination, but a bunch of pastors from a denomination, not ours, who were lamenting their loss of cultural prowess. Like, nobody's looking to us anymore. Like, we're not the people who have influence. How do we get more influence? And it's like, I didn't say this, you know, but I was like, I wouldn't want to be like you guys. You're just grumpy. Like, come on in, the water's great, all right? We just don't like anything. Like, why would, why would you have influence? Right? Like, they're, they're lamenting, like, oh, it's, uh, the people are listening to the artists. Like, Drake has more influence than me. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Right? So, I'm sorry. I just, I don't make the rules again. That's the where we are. And again, people have felt this loss of or decline of what feels like the Christian West. And there have been kind of two responses. Fight or flight, just our two basic responses to danger, fight or flight. And you can kind of see this in the 20th century in America. In the 20th century, the fight would have been fundamentalism. There's things that go bump in the night. People don't like what we're saying. We just got to swing a hammer, and whoever's left standing, when we're done swinging the hammer, they're with us. All right? Just, if the world's a bad place, no one believes what we believe, let's just fight. All right? We're losing our influence. That's because people don't like truth. Just, just crank up the truth. There also, though, was a flight response, and that would be represented through mainline denominations. <gasps> people don't like us. Things are offensive. Let's hide everything that's not offensive. Yeah, you don't like that? We don't like that either. Let's just erase it. And then you have something that's not even Christian at the end of the day. It's become this whole other thing. Because we just erased everything that made it Christian. We ran away. We hid. Fight and flight. Now, I don't believe that the Apostle Paul 
gave his life, suffered lashes, 40 minus 1, was kicked out of the community of Pharisees, of which he was a really big deal. I don't think he did all these things and ultimately died so that we could just fight and flight. I think he had a different vision for how we reach folks. And that's being a counterculture of hope. I believe that Paul's vision for what he saw about who this new creation community could be, when it gets to Crete, let's say, this really important uh, island city, when we get to Crete, how we can offer, how we move people from disinterested to interested is we are a counterculture of hope. Counterculture. We're not like the flight folks. We're like, are we different? Let's erase anything that's different. And hope. We're not like the scared fundamentalists who are like, yeah, you're wrong. Come on over on our side or we'll just yell at you. We're a counterculture of hope. And Paul is writing to a young man and who he is leaving on this island saying, hey, why don't you establish pockets of these new creation communities all throughout this island? And we really think if we're a counterculture of hope, disinterested people will start to ask, why? What's going on over there? So again, the problem isn't craving. We're not living in an age where people don't have desires. We're not living in an age where people want more. We were made for more, and people feel that. That's not an issue. The issue does, does the church have anything helpful to say? Or are we just fighting and flighting? When it comes to critical theory and questions around that, what would it look like to be a community, a counterculture of hope? What about climate change? What would it look like if we were a, a counterculture of hopeful people? Libertarianism. What about our buddy Joe? What does it look like for us to be where we are? That's Titus. So we're going to talk about Titus. We're going to unpack Titus from now till Easter because we want a map. Where are we going? We, we've talked about who we are. We've talked about we value connection. We value orienting our lives around Scripture. We value these spiritual practices and sharing our story. But how does that impact my neighborhood? How does that, how does that change my world? And Paul's vision is that we would be a counterculture of hope. So we're going to unpack this letter. And again, as we start to unpack this letter, if that's true, if Paul really is saying we're going to be a counterculture of hope, you got to see that, all right? So we're going to talk about Paul's letter. But before we do, I just have to like just, again, I'm asking for another umbrella of grace. Usually I only ask for like one a week. Today's two. So just hang with me, all right? All right? Here's the second umbrella of grace I just got to ask for. We got to talk about... The Bible and these letters, okay? Just hang on with me for a second, okay? I grew up in a church tradition where the letters of Paul received a ton of attention, okay? Anecdotal, 
I know there's statisticians out there, again. Anecdotal. I think about 90% of the sermons I heard growing up were from Paul, okay? But it just gets a lot of attention in the, in the community I grew up in, all right? Part of the reason for that is because they're easy, right? It's addressed to you, okay? So it's like, you, do not be anxious. You're like, that's me. I don't need to be anxious. That's, that's easy. I got this. I opened my Bible, got a word from the Lord. We're good to go. Okay, I don't mean to minimize that. I don't mean to minimize that. But here's the thing. If you have a Bible, please open it back to Titus 1. All right, back to Titus 1. Here we go. We're like, man, it's so easy to just read Paul's letters because they're written to me. All right, here we go. Titus 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect. We'll talk about that. Don't worry. And their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness uh, in the hope of eternal life. Skip down to verse 4. To Titus. So Paul is writing to Titus. Now, how many of you in here are named Titus? Even if you were, you're not this Titus. Okay, so here's a challenge. The Bible is not written to you. It's not written to me. But if you remember, again, I see the faces. There's still the umbrella. Hang on. The Bible may not be written to you, but it's written for you. Yes. That was from what is the Bible. The Bible's not written to you, but it is written for you, okay? And that changes, please, 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 please. My voice is cracking. I feel so strongly about this. That changes how we read these letters, okay? We're overhearing a conversation, all right? Just because it's a command and it's in one of these letters doesn't mean that you should do it. Now, you're like, how dare you? I totally disagree with that. I hear you. I hear you. It sounds crazy. So I'm not in any way trying to belittle the Bible. But I just want to point out something that nobody in here obeyed this morning. Nobody. Okay? This is at the end of 1 Thessalonians. This is in the middle of an epistle. Okay? It's a command in an epistle. We should do it, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 26. A command. What is a command? Not optional. Do it. Right? Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Nobody, nobody kissed me in here this morning. And praise God for that. I don't want you to kiss me. I just want to be very clear. I, I want to be crystal clear. I'm not asking anyone. To, don't, don't, okay? Boundaries, all right? But that's a command in an epistle. Shouldn't we do it? Uh, well, that's just one. No, that's mentioned four times, and it's not just Paul. Peter says it too. It's actually mentioned seven times in the New Testament. Uh, okay, are you open to a new perspective? Thank you. <laughs> what Paul is doing is he's writing to a specific people in a specific time. And in that specific time, Greeting each other with a kiss was a culturally appropriate way to show affection, welcome, and care. In our cultural experience, it actually is an inappropriate way to show affection and care. Like, what do you mean? Look, if we just became that church where we did, were known for kissing each other, I mean, it doesn't take long for word to spread. That church over there in Sylvie. I don't know what to do about that. They sure are friendly over there. <laughs> That's some folks. And there's other folks who are like, man, they don't even care about COVID, right? They're just kissing everybody like crazy, right? It would become a distraction. 
And so here's what, here, we just got to own this for a second. You can disobey these letters by literally trying to obey them. Paul is saying, greet each other in welcoming, warm, culturally appropriate ways. Be hospitable. It would be a distraction for us to literally do what it says. Now, I don't want to alarm you. Some of you are like, well, how in the world am I supposed to read the Bible? This just makes this so much more complicated. That's the other way that these letters are different, okay? Now, I don't write many letters. My wife writes a ton of letters. She, it's, it's amazing, right? I don't really write any letters. This is how I write letters, okay? And obviously, obviously this is different from how Paul wrote letters. He had an android. <laughs> but this is, this is what I'm getting at. If I have a thought... I will just send people texts. I'm getting better at it, right? But, oh, man, hey, I should, let's start a band. Let's start a band. Oh, never mind. I thought it through, right? And I got to undo damage, right? All right? I think it. I can send it out. Obviously, Paul didn't have that kind of immediacy. So there's a little difference. You're like, well, maybe he had one of these. This is real. This is my real typewriter that's sitting at home in my office. That's Keller Winklemeyer's uh, fuzz pedal underneath it. So I haven't forgotten I owe you fuzz pedal back. But, um, yeah, on very special occasions, very special occasions, I will take this typewriter out. I feel very like, much like Tom Hanks, right? And I'll just, t -t 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 -t. it's very satisfying until you realize how dependent you are on backspace. But, but it's, it's really fun, it's beautiful, and it's a really cool way to write letters. Obviously, also not how Paul wrote letters. How did Paul write letters? Uh, many of us have this image of Paul writing letters as like he's kind of sitting in his office in his study, you know, and he, depending on what church tradition you are, he's either smoking a pipe or he's chewing on his pen. He, he's just sitting deep in thought and then in runs like, you know, Timothy, <sighs> Paul, you're like never going to believe what's going on in Corinth. He's like, what is it, Timothy? Oh man, there's like a guy sleeping with his stepmother and like they, they're just like totally abusing the Lord's Supper. And he's like, hang on, hang on, dear Corinth. All right. What else did you say? Okay, great. Send this out. Not how Paul wrote letters. We have a ton of letters, a ton of letters from antiquity, from the first century, tons of them. You have lots you can compare this to, okay? Far and away, far and away, not even close. You know what the longest letters in antiquity are? Paul's. People didn't write a ton of letters because it was wildly expensive. It's like a Mercedes every time they're sending out one of these letters. It was a crazy sacrifice, wildly expensive. And so it wasn't as though they just slapped something together and sent it off and hoped for the best. Paul was intentional, and his, he knew that these letters would be, it was written to Titus, but it would be read out loud, and in community, we would hear it, chew over it, discuss it, and then live it together. See, we think of Bible study as being an incredibly private thing. And again, I no shame in that. I study the Bible privately. You should study the Bible privately. If they had Bibles, they would have studied them privately back then. But this was a community event. These letters were shared and passed around. That's how Colossians ends. Hey, pass this around to the churches. Paul, I believe, wrote this letter with you and I in mind. It's not written to you, but it's absolutely written for you. And so we have to just ask ourselves, are we good conversational partners? 
right? Are we willing to listen to what Paul's saying? Are we willing to sit with it? Or do we just want to rush off and, and try to do it quickly? Because beautiful things happen when we sit with it, all right? Let's look at this. These books are not random. They are carefully constructed works of literary genius. And I do not use that word lightly. These books are beautifully structured. This is Titus 1-2. Let's read 1-1, though, okay? 1-1. Paul, a servant of God... Only time in the New Testament he says that. Remind me to tell you why later. Servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing why? To further the faith. To cultivate, to strengthen, to build up the faith. Faith in what? Verse 2. In the hope of eternal life. Paul is saying he is writing this letter to strengthen your faith in the hope of eternal life. Now, a word on hope. What does it mean to hope? Right? Is it like I hope the Super Bowl is a good game tonight? I have no control over that. I'm just, what I'm saying is like, it would be nice. Is that what Paul's saying? Like, it would be nice if I had eternal life. I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, imagine this for a second, all right? Imagine you know everything you know right now. So everything you know right now, you know in March of 2019, okay? So every single thing that you know, every experience you've had, every emotion you've had, everything you've seen, you have that, but it's March of 2019, okay? Here's what you would do. You would sell your car. You would sell your clothes. You'd just Gary V your life, okay? You'd just get rid of everything, sell all this stuff, and then you'd take all your money and you would invest it in Zoom stock. <laughs> and your family and friends would be like, what are you doing? This app has been around for forever. Don't we have FaceTime? Like, what's the point of this? No, no, no. Just trust me, all right? You're going to want all your money in Zoom. Like, what? You're crazy. No, I'm not crazy. I'm confident. That's what Paul is trying to cultivate in us. Confidence. This deep, abounding, residing, no matter what comes your way. Oh, your kids hate you? Oh, your, your career didn't pan out the way you thought it would? Oh, you wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you don't like what you see? Deep, resounding confidence. Well, that's one verse. Why are you saying that? Well, again, these are literary masterpieces. This is how the book ends. So that, having been justified by his grace, again, Paul writes differently than we do. So if you just, for a second, I'm not saying it's not important, but just ignore that phrase, having been justified by his grace. It's like a rabbit trail. So that we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. When a book starts with something, and then when a book ends with something, those are called bookends. This book of Titus is bookended on hope. Hope. And it's written to a group of people who are living in fear. Crete is a crazy place. It is a, there's no gospel witness there. And so what Paul does is beautiful. He sends one of his most trusted people that he led to Christ to this place of Crete so that he could establish these new creation communities that are countercultures built on hope. Who was Titus? 
This was not for you to see. If any of you are curious, you can take a picture of it. But like Titus was definitely a Gentile. He may have been from Antioch. So New Testament scholars believe that when Paul was starting out, it was like their launching pad, his missionary journeys, and he was in Antioch. He met a guy named Titus. He led Titus to the faith. Why do we think he led Titus to the faith? Titus 1.4 says this, Titus, my true son in our common faith. Paul only calls people his true son whom he's led to faith. Think about how crazy this is. All right, Paul was a Pharisee. He, he, the title he kept till he died. All right, so he was, he was the religious in. He heads out of Jerusalem and he gets an outcast. A guy who was like, whoa, hey, this scrappy little kid, like, no, 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 he can't be the insider. And Paul makes him one of his most trusted, most trusted uh, co-workers. All right? Like, this is amazing. We tend to think, oh, man, once we start to get things straightened out, once we have a clue of where we're going, then we'll start to get busy. As Paul's building the airplane, he's grabbing people, getting them plugged in, and people, that it was costly. He talks about in Acts 15, he went to a church council, and Titus came, and there was questions because he wasn't circumcised. And at great cost to himself, Paul took this scrappy kid into those meetings and was like, no, I trust him. He's my guy. He trusted him with, like, extremely delicate matters, collecting for Jerusalem Christians, encouraging the church in Corinth to match the donations of the Macedonian church. There was a famine, and so Paul basically sent him out to, you know, loosen people's checkbooks. Uh, there was another time in Corinth where Titus went on his own to solve some of the problems in Corinth. And so Paul takes his most trusted apprentice, one that he's raised up, and he sends him into a really hard situation. It's really important to know the where. Where was Titus? He was on Crete. Now, some of you may be wondering, where did you get this whole counterculture idea from? All right, Titus 1, 2. Again, these are works of art. These are masterpieces. In the hope of eternal life, which God who does not what? Okay, God doesn't lie. Think about this for a second. He could have said anything about God. Which God who's faithful, right? That would cultivate hope, right? Which God who keeps his promises. Yeah, that cultivates hope. He doesn't say that, though. He says God who doesn't lie. Why does he say that? Because Cretans lie. Look with me at verse 10. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. That's who you're going to. What is he saying? The God we worship and serve cannot lie. Opsudes. It's an alpha primitive. Ah, there's no lying. He's the no lying God. Is literally what it says. He's not able to lie. He cannot lie. The no lying God is sending Titus to a place where they lie all the time. He quotes Epimenides. Epimenides called Cretans liars, even though he was a Cretan, because Cretans claimed that Zeus died and was buried on Crete. No idea why they claimed that, but... I mean, it was a lie, right? Uh, and so they had this cultural, like, hey, we lie, we cheat, we steal. And so he's, he's saying, hey, our God doesn't lie. What we love, what we worship shapes who we are. And so you're trusting a faithful God. But remember this, though. The letter, as it's starting out, says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. 
Paul's trying to further our faith. He wants to cultivate. He's saying, hey, you can trust this God. He doesn't lie. Your world is crazy. The situation you're in, it, it's understandable why people are afraid. It's understandable why people go, I don't think church has any answers for this. We get it. But he's rooting it in who God is. Listen to how Paul identifies himself. Paul, servant of God. That's the only time in the New Testament where Paul calls himself a servant of God. Every other time he calls himself a servant of Jesus. He's calling himself a servant of God, I believe, because servant of God is an Old Testament title for people like Moses, people like Joshua, people like the prophets. Paul is saying, if you hear my voice, you're hearing God. And what does God want you to know? He wants you to be confident. March 2019, Zoom confident in life that he's promised. Because he can't lie. He can't lie. And that shapes how we navigate our where. It shapes it. We, I mean, if we, if, if we really trust this, if we really trust, okay, God can't lie, and my experience doesn't match up with that. It takes effort to stay in that place. It's way easier, but yeah, this is hard. I'm out. This doesn't line up. God, you're not trustworthy. I gave the old college try, but I just can't keep doing this anymore. It takes effort and energy to do that. That's why I believe Paul is writing so that, look, look at what he says. It's in verse 5. He says this, The reason I left you in Crete was that so you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. Create communities. We can't be a counterculture of hope alone. That's why as a church, we really deeply value connection groups. They're the primary place that you're going to receive care from this church community. Look, I can't meet all your needs. The pastoral staff cannot meet all your needs, but we can find a place where someone will meet your needs. We don't want to rob this body of being the body. We don't want to rob people of, hey, I get to experience someone sharing their story and it was really hard and then other people went and met needs. Like we don't want to just, oh, let's just throw money, let's just throw programs at things. No, relationships. How do we be a counterculture of hope? We, we cultivate hope together. It is not good for man to be alone because no one doubts our inner narrator. You're not enough. You can't do this. God isn't good. But when we get together and we can share, man, I'm, I am struggling. I, it's cancer. Is God good? I mean, I believe he's good, but why do I have cancer? And you can have people put their hands on you and weep with you. They don't have answers, but they're just with you. And you can feel, man, they have hope. That gives me hope. I might be able to experience hope. So connection groups. We also really want to do something different this year. We're going to take a few retreats together. And we really value retreats around here. I know one, like, evangelical megachurch pastor said, we don't retreat. You know, we run toward problems. We retreat. Uh, and so I'm French-Canadian. What can I say? Um... <laughs> We really value getting away, unplugging, stopping the regular rhythms of life, getting away together, 
and learning and hearing how to connect, the value of connection, the biblical basis for it, what it does to us. So this is the first time we're doing it, March 11th through 13th. If you're interested at the, at the Welcome Center, you can just give us your email. We'd love to get you more info. Cost is about $100 a person, but don't let that be a distraction. Money's an issue. We'll get you there. All right? There's about 10 spots left, and you're like, do they want me there? Yes. Yes. The invitation is open. We'd love to have you there. Because we recognize that we don't do this alone. It's so easy. It's so easy to believe I'm in this all on my own. The indelible Ruth Haley Barton, the great spiritual uh, director, once told a story about a traveling monk. And the monk would travel around to different monasteries and visit and hear from folks. And one day he came to a new monastery he'd never been to. And so he comes upon this new monastery and he uh, walks around and he finds a garden. And there's a monk who's gardening. And so he walks up to the monk. And again, this is a weird question, but he's a monk. They don't really talk to people a lot. Uh, Isolation, you know. He says, brother, what are your dreams? monk who's gardening says, oh, my dream is to be a monk. And the traveling monk was confused. And he said, well, wh- what do you mean? Like, aren't you a monk? Like, how, how long have you been here? How long have you been here? And the gardening monk said, 25 years. I hate to tell you this, but I think you're a monk. And the gardening monk looked back and said, no, I'm not back his robe and there's a gun holstered to his hip. Traveling monk was taken aback. Because I don't care if you're a monk from Texas or how second amendmenty you are, seeing a monk with a gun is a little unnerving. And he said, what's that? And the gardening monk says, I've been hurt. I've hurt people. There's people who are looking for me. This isn't a safe place. I'm not safe. And the traveling monk didn't know what to say, and he said, give me the gun. I can't. I can't. It's keeping me safe. And he said, brother, give me the gun. He unholsters it, puts it in his hand, and weeps. What happened? transference of hope. Many of us have hoped in things that have let us down. We've hoped in a relationship, a career, a child, a child's career, being liked, being known, and we've been let down. And the invitation to transfer our hope is scary, and it feels like death because it is death and the beauty of the hope of eternal life is that there is life after that death you can have confidence that the same God who rose Jesus from the dead doesn't lie when he talks to you father Father, we want to be a people who are a counterculture, a counterculture of hope, who don't live in fear, who don't fight, 
But God, it's a scary world. God, it's a scary world. People we love move away from us. People we trust hurt us. God, as we work to trust the God who doesn't lie, we realize our faith is not as deep as we thought. So, Father, as we take steps toward you, I pray, I pray that with each step, we would feel your pleasure and we'd feel the joy. As C.S. Lewis said, the glory of man is to believe that God delights in him. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.